0: Hello, I'm Andrew Palmer, Business Affairs Editor, and this is Money Talks. This week we'll be examining
1: the potential and pitfalls of an economy based around corporate giants. I think that we have at the moment a malign combination of stagnation and disruption.
2: The problem with Africa's cities. An awful lot of the infrastructure that is built, an awful lot of change that
3: does come, probably benefits the relatively well
2: off, you know, the upper middle classes of middle class.
0: And Venezuela's multinational nightmare.
3: If you leave A, you're giving up the market, and B, the assets that you do have there will probably be seized by the government, as was the case with Clorox.
0: So first, we're heading into a world of corporate superstars, the handful of massive firms which dominate the global economy. A special report coming up in this week's newspaper dives into why big companies just keep getting bigger and changing the world in the process. Its author, our management editor and Schumpeter columnist, Adrian Waldridge, joins me now. Adrian, hello. Hello. So, Adrian, in the report you coined the
1: phrase corporate superstars. What do you mean by that? I mean by that the handful of giant global companies that are entrenching themselves at the very heart of the global economy. Some of these are very long-standing traditional companies that have managed to reinvent themselves for the modern age. General Electric would be an example. Some of them are emerging market companies like Hire that have taken advantage of globalization and have emerged on the global stage. And some of them, you know, the most obvious of them, are tech superstars that have come from almost nowhere and now dominates huge areas of our lives. Google, which hardly existed in the late 1990s, Facebook, Twitter, Apple, and uh, Amazon. Just extraordinarily powerful companies. And I think what we're seeing is consolidation in area. After area after area, this is at its most advanced in the United States, where the proportion of GDP generated by the biggest companies has gone from about 33% in 1994 to 46% in 2013. So a big process of consolidation, and it's also at its most advanced in in highly cerebral parts of the economy, such as tech and finance so if you think of america as the future if you think of tech and finance as the future we seem to be moving to a more concentrated version of capitalism
0: and this this sits very oddly with what we like to think of as the american corporate landscape which is sort of disruption everywhere entrepreneurs are fated people sort of being turned over and and new technologies arriving all of the time?
1: Absolutely. Since the 1980s, we've tended to think that the main trend of capitalism is towards a more entrepreneurial economy. What we saw in the 1980s was big giants being felled either by deregulation with AT&T abolished or by insurgent companies like Apple and Microsoft destroying IBM. And we've thought of the world as entrepreneurial and we particularly thought of the American world as entrepreneurial. But what we've seen in the last... Uh, Ten to twenty years is new companies plus old companies that revive themselves, really entrenching themselves. And at the same time, and even more concerning than that, is the rate of new company formation going down. So the rate of new company formation in the United States is at its lowest point since the late 1970s. There are more companies dying than being born. The average age of the company that that the average American works for is going up significantly. So we're not talking about an entrepreneurial economy. We're talking about a recorporatization of the American economy and many other economies as well. So this is uh, a worrying development. And what is it
0: that explains this? Why the
1: returns to scale at this point? Yeah, it's partly because the returns to scale are different from old returns to scale. Old scale was about making more and more stuff. And the more you made, the the more you could uh, profit from making it. Your your unit costs go down. Uh, Some of this scale is network effects. And network effects means that the more people you have who belong to your network the more valuable you are to the members of the networks. And network effects are very powerful. That's one thing. I think globalization is rewarding scale in many ways because the more global you are, the more assets you have scattered around the world, particularly intellectual assets, the more you can profit from this global world. So I think bigger companies tend to do better in that world. I think that we have at the moment a malign combination of stagnation and disruption. Big companies are good in that sense because they, they have more buffering uh, they're good at being able to deal with shocks mm. in a world where there's, there's not a lot of money, uh, easy money around to make. And also there's a premium on consolidation. So many industries, very stagnant industries, mature stagnant industries, have a huge incentive to consolidate and roll each other up. Some people might think,
0: what's the problem here? You've got, particularly in the tech world, you've got these firms which are producing wonderful things that we're all benefiting from as consumers. If there isn't competition that enables these firms to invest for the long term, they're using their cash to do just that in ways that potentially change lives for the better over the long term for all of us. So why, why be
1: so down on these things? Well, absolutely. I think a lot of this special report does actually celebrate the power of these superstars, the fact that they're not only producing, constantly improving the products that we use, but also dreaming up a future which nobody but these companies could produce with driverless cars, with um, assistants, voice-activated assistants that can do all of our organisation, robots that can do that, this and the other. They are doing a lot to improve the world. We never need to forget about that. But nevertheless, corporate power, corporate consolidation tend to be worrying things in the long term. And I would say that two things... Uh, need to be watched here. One is that these companies, which are great companies, tend to be great in every dimension. And they're great at pushing the rules of um, business, as well as producing new great products so they tend to be very very good at shifting their money around the world into tax havens which are used more and more and more very good at this process of inversion whereby they change their headquarters to the lowest tax jurisdiction or or this transfer pricing which they use to shift profits from one jurisdiction to to another and they're producing more and more sophisticated ways uh, of doing this You're sounding like the European Commission at the moment Yeah absolutely Uh, actually I would be I would be quite often on their side about these things Um, and also they're very good good at lobbying and at getting former politicians like the former head of the European Commission Mr Barroso to work for them i think that creates very bad incentives into the system so these dark arts they push them they make them much more sophisticated and they tend to mainstream them because they're great well-known companies and if they're doing if apple does it why shouldn't we do it and secondly i think consolidation is a, is a worry. Uh, because companies that have a great deal of market power have less incentive to innovate, uh, more incentive to exploit patents. And I think these companies are building up defenses against competition, which are creating potentially uncompetitive environments. The implication of this is that consumers may not be
0: um, the people who sort of rein these these firms in, we're locked in because of data and network effects. Entrepreneurs are looking to sell them their companies to these yep. giants rather than to bring them down. So antitrust is where you're arguing that the action has to be.
1: I think that the presumption of antitrust authorities since the 1980s is that business is basically something that should be given the benefit of the doubt. And that was right in the 1980s when the new Reagan sort of doctrine with Judge Bork came in. But after 20 years of growing consolidation, I think we are beginning to move towards a world in which the benefit of the doubt shouldn't be given to the biggest companies. But secondly, most antitrust policy was made in a world of lumps. It was made in the world of steel. It was made in the world of Coca-Cola versus Pepsi. And we need to adapt it to a new world of networks. And there are various things that we can have in our armory that we should think about using, you know, about forcing markets to be contestable, making sure that individuals own their information rather than the information being owned by, by Facebook or the rest of it forcing companies to, to have in their store not just Apple apps but apps from, from other companies and I think we need to be willing to do this, not just for the benefit of, of consumers but for the benefit of innovation and these companies in the end because I, I think it would be very um, optimistic to imagine that in powerful incumbents will continue to do good to the world
0: So celebrate the superstars but fear them too And keep them on their toes Adrian Waldridge, thank you very much now, if you're keen to bemoan the rise of tech giants like Facebook and Google, why don't you let us know your views on Twitter, at Economist Radio, or you can always send an email to radio at Now we move on to cities in Africa. In most of the world, bigger metropolises help people to climb out of poverty. But in Africa, they too often trap them within it. With me on the line now from Nairobi to discuss why African cities fail to spread the wealth is Daniel Knowles, our Africa correspondent. Daniel, Africa is the world's fastest urbanizing continent and its biggest cities, like Nairobi, where you're talking to us now, are expanding at rates of more than 4% a year. So why isn't this kind of growth translating into good outcomes?
2: Well, the trouble with a lot of African cities is that the urbanization is not really being driven by industrialization. People aren't moving to cities for factory jobs and it's also not being driven by kind of growing productivity in the countryside. What seems to be happening with a lot of African cities is that you have a kind of consumption city, cities that essentially kind of concentrate the gains of natural resources or exports and then consume them. And what this means is that cities can grow without having the infrastructure, or the housing that, that you get in, you know, in sort of more productive cities, people move to them even though there aren't reliable roads or electricity systems, you know, water, sewage, whatever it is, sanitation. And so African cities sort of characterized by these big slums, you know, these these very grim slums in which people possibly are more than they do in the countryside, but don't earn a lot.
0: Right. So this is a very sort of organic process that you're describing from from the sound of it. Are there cities in Africa that sort of present a different story that do this well?
2: I mean, it's difficult to say. I think, you know, there's more progress in some cities than in others. In Kigali, the capital of Rwanda, for example, the roads have been getting better. There's a lot of investment in electrification. In Abidjan, which is the commercial capital of, of Ivory Coast, there's new roads being built. Um toll roads, which have, you know, eased up the traffic problems. Actually, there's some of that in Lagos too. But, um, you know, and there are slum improvements and upgrading programs in various parts of the continent. But I think part of the problem is that the political economy kind of fundamentally hasn't changed in a lot of these countries. You're not still not really having the kind of mass employment industrialization in, in cities and uh, an awful lot of the infrastructure that is built and an awful lot of changed it does come, probably benefits the relatively well off, you know, the upper middle classes or middle classes.
0: I mean, this sounds like an absolutely enormous challenge, but just lay out for us what the kind of steps are that would would lead to a better situation. What should cities be doing in Africa?
2: You know, as people move to cities, one thing that does happen, uh, including in Africa, is that fertility falls so the pace of urbanization though it it's incredibly quick may begin slowing as people have fewer children you know there's less pressure coming from the countryside relatively as so perhaps you know as the pressure releases then some of the infrastructure that is being built in african cities can begin benefiting a greater number of people otherwise though, i think you know you're sort of hoping for changes in political economies and perhaps one of the things that is positive in a sort of perverse way is the falling commodity prices that's affected a lot of african economies and hit them quite hard means that there's more incentive on governments to try and create you know the conditions for jobs that will actually employ people to be brought in because they can't just rely on revenues from oil or from mining as much anymore.
0: Presumably, there's also fewer tax revenues if, if commodity prices are falling.
2: Well, absolutely, yes. And one of the first things that tends to get hit, you know, not just in Africa, of course, in the West too, is infrastructure. And yeah, that's going to be a, a problem, um, certainly in this sort of short to medium run, which is, you know, going to make it much more difficult for cities like Lagos and Accra, which... You know, struggling with these problems.
0: Well, it's a big, big challenge and a fascinating area. Daniel, thank you very much. And finally, we move on to Venezuela. The troubled South American country was once an attractive market for multinationals, but it's rapidly becoming a nightmare. Charlotte Howard, our consumer goods correspondent, has been tracking this story and she joins us now. Charlotte, Venezuela has long been in the grip of an economic crisis, so it's no surprise that firms have been hit hard. But what's the situation on the ground now?
3: It's deteriorated very rapidly in the past few years. So you had companies who had been making money in bolivars, unable to convert them to dollars, and they were taking huge write-offs quarter after quarter as the bolivar was devalued. And so what you had was some companies who decided to leave altogether. So Clorox and Kimberly-Clark, two big American companies, decided to leave. Now the problem with that is that if you leave – A, you're giving up the market, and B, the assets that you do have there will probably be seized by the government, as was the case with Clorox. So other companies are trying to find other inventive routes.
0: Okay. So what kind of things would that be? Presumably, they just sort of scale back operations. They're almost comatose.
3: So they scale back operations, and then they also do this funny accounting fix called deconsolidating their financial returns. So they essentially isolate their subsidiary in Venezuela from the rest of the business, so it doesn't show up in their P&L.
0: The P&L meaning the firm's financial results?
3: Yes. And that means that they can keep a smaller presence in Venezuela without harming the parent company. But that presence is very hairy and hard operationally.
0: So how long can you keep going with just maintaining operations in this kind of steady state?
3: It's really hard for a variety of reasons. One, it's hard to get supplies. So you may not have the inputs that you need to manufacture your goods. Two, the government is very carefully controlling everything about your business. So uh, they often have officers stationed in the company's plants to make sure that the company isn't hoarding goods. They're controlling the distribution of goods, often to state-owned supermarkets, that are the precise distribution is politically motivated to shore up support in different areas. Um, Companies, executives are constantly being arrested and intimidated. It's really a difficult situation, not least because you still have some workers, right? And your wage increases don't keep up with the dramatic pace of inflation. So uh, this year, the IMF expects inflation to be northward of 700%. So if you imagine that type of pressure for a company, you're just going to get strange results. So for example, Kellogg, their cereal boxes are still being sold, but they have this weird kind of grayish color to Tony the Tiger or whatever's on the cereal box. And sort of the question is why? And there there was some official explanation, I think, that had to do with an environmental reason. But The answer is likely that they don't have ink.
0: And back at headquarters, what's the the strategy here? I mean, Venezuela is potentially a, a wealthy country and has been in the past. So are they just holding on for some change of regime?
3: They're holding on. Well, first of all, most companies don't want to talk about it for obvious reasons. It's very dicey in Venezuela at the moment. And um, they certainly don't want to say that they're waiting for a change in regime. One can imply that they are waiting for perhaps oil prices to rise again. So Venezuela has the biggest proven reserves of crude oil in the world. And so if prices start rising or if there's a regime change, then business may pick up there.
0: One to keep an eye on. Charlotte Howard, thank you. Well, that's it for Money Talks this week. To read more about Venezuela and the other stories mentioned in this show, do pick up the upcoming issue of The Economist or visit economist.com. In London, this is The Economist.